Welcome to Afro Catalyst. I'm Isaac Kwekufuku Jr., founder of Boltway Emerging Markets Group, a leading consultancy focused on the global south. On Afro Catalyst, we talk to trailblazers who are shaping Africa's future to understand the challenges and opportunities they face in pushing their respective industries forward. Coming up, Ghanaian entrepreneur Fred Swanecker. As the founder of ALG, he is on a mission to reimagine leadership in Africa, a calling he has already dedicated most of his career to, creating a series of platforms that have landed him on Time's 100 Most Influential list. In this episode, I talk to the Stanford graduate about his inspiring journey, the importance of developing strong institutions and networks, as well as how African innovation can transform business practices around the world. You grew up all across the continent. How do those experiences, uh, how, how have they shaped the way you view your work, the way you view leadership, and I guess the way you view entrepreneurship writ large uh, in, in the Africa context? I was born in Ghana. I left Ghana at the age of four. Um, and uh, every four years, my family traveled to different parts of the continent. We went to Gambia first, four years, then to Botswana, and then they sent me to school in Zimbabwe for four years. Um, and... Uh, and then I went to college in the U.S. And then I, I returned immediately back to Africa because I'd fallen in love with the continent of Africa. And then I've worked since then in South Africa and Mauritius and Ghana and Nigeria. I've worked all across the continent. What this Pan-African experience has done for me is it got me to see many of the challenges that we, we have as a continent. But also, it's what shaped my worldview because as I analyzed all these challenges that we had in Africa, I realized that at the root cause of almost all these challenges was leadership. And so I realized that there was so much that we were doing as well to treat the symptoms of bad leadership in Africa, but we were not doing enough to, to address the root cause itself. We were not creating leaders. The other thing that um, happened in my early, early on in my life was, 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 was seeing the power of education and how education can be a transformative force for human capital. My mother was a teacher, my grandmother was a teacher, my grandfather started one of the schools in Ghana called Accra Academy. And so it's been, our, it's not, I would say it's in our DNA. You know, when I was 18, you know, my dad had just passed away and my mother had a good track record as a teacher. And parents approached her and said, we'd like you to start a school. But she had a job and she had you know, children to look after. So she said, I can't quit my job and start uh, school. So she made me the headmaster of the school when I was 18. And I ran the school for a year. I taught some classes, I managed other teachers and that. And I saw the impact that we had. You know, it was a very small school in a dusty town in Botswana called Selvipipe. But that experience of being a venture at that age um, was some of that practice that I, I, I really believe that if you get practice at a young age of trying to do something, it builds the confidence in you to do something at a much bigger stage in your life. Uh, in the past, you said constraint breeds innovation. And this was within the context of COVID. What innovations have you felt like you've, you've, you've developed because of this new constraint on our lives? Africa is the land of constraints, right? We have very little capital. We have very little um, purchasing power of our consumers. We have challenges with electricity, with, with broader infrastructure. We have so many challenges that uh, other parts of the world just do not have. So that what that means is that you cannot do things in the conventional way. You have to reimagine and, um, and really do things in, in innovative ways if you want to actually drive progress. In theory, Africa should be the most innovative continent in the world. 
because we are the most constrained continent in the world, right? And we've seen flashes of that brilliance come out. For example, you know, how we leapfrogged uh, when, when the mobile phone was, was, was developed. We didn't have landlines, so we had no choice but to go to mobile. You know, we went from a few million phone lines in, two, in early 2000 to, you know, 700 million now mobile connections, right, in just 20 years. Um, and things like the M-Pesa, et cetera, came out of Africa. Mobile money. Today, Apple Pay is boasting, oh, we, 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 we've got Apple Pay. 20 years later, a lot of what we have done in the AL group in, in building out a new model of higher education, developing skills for the 21st century, a new way of financing higher education, we are a world first in what we're doing. And we wouldn't have thought of the, the model that we have if it wasn't for the constraints of living in a continent where we have to provide education with limited resources at much faster rates than has happened before and without um, things like all the professors that you might have had in other parts of the world. So we've had to reimagine completely and develop a model that is completely unconventional um, and, and, and radical. When COVID happened, I remember I was traveling in Portugal and I came back to, to Kenya, uh, March 15th. Uh, the first thing we did was we paused operations and we dealt with the crisis, you know, made sure that our people were safe, our students were safe, we moved everything online, etc. We then paused operations. I stopped work for a month. I said, we're just going to think and reimagine and, and, and look forward to think about what the world is going to look like post-COVID. We designed a whole new organization. We got all our staff to resign from their old roles and apply for new roles in the new organization. And we relaunched. And all this happened in five months. That process <laughs> to come up with a new strategy, to test the strategy, to design a new organization and restructure would have taken two years under normal time. But we did it in five months because we had no choice because of the constraints. We had to come up with a new plan very quickly. You know, today I can, in one day, have a conference call with someone in Dubai, participate in a conference in New York in the afternoon and have um, a board meeting with colleagues from all over the world by the evening. Before, I would have needed two weeks to do that same thing because I had to fly all over the place, <laughs> right? So speed is, much, is something that we are we're adapting, that we're moving much faster thanks to COVID. We have digitized a lot more. As a result, we have significantly saved costs in different areas. You know, we've decided that as a company, we are going to be, remain 100% digital post-COVID. We're not going back to headquarters, right? And that has opened up so many possibilities. So now I don't have worries about work permits in Africa. Now I just hire people from all around the world. I've got a tech team with people sitting in Russia and in India, all across Africa, Canada. And we're achieving much more progress in six months than we were able to do in three years because I couldn't get the talent that I needed to move to country A or country B in Africa because of work permits, right? Um, and so we are going to continue that model post-COVID. We're remaining completely, um, uh, you know, uh, remote company. Now, of course, we'll do still, we'll still do things like gather periodically. Once the pandemic is over, we can bring our teams together for three months for a, a retreat. You know, I can bring my management team together in person. People who live in different cities in our team can meet, you know, once a week for happy hour and, and different parts. But we're really thinking about how do we change the way we work. Our training programs as well, we've decided to become much more digitized. And so before COVID, we were planning to, to reach 50,000 students by year, in, by 2025, cumulatively. Now our plan is to reach 500,000 students in that same time. So we're trying to get 10 times the number of people through our programs because we're leveraging technology and so forth. Right?
Um, and, and so, you know, I can go on and on, but there are many, many things that we are doing in a faster way, at a larger scale, and a cheaper way, um, thanks to, to COVID. And, and I think that we as a continent should use this opportunity to reimagine how we emerge and not just go back to business as usual. So, Fred, that, that, that's very interesting on many fronts, right? The ability to now scale very quickly. You say it so fluidly, right? As though it's something that come, it comes naturally to you. And, and I think that somehow when you're stuck in what I call a, a, a constrained mindset, to use your word, it, it also sometimes prohibits you from thinking bigger than you can see. So all you see in front of you is the fact that you have five employees and you need to worry about them. What are some of the things that you, I guess, as you reflect on the way you're going to run your business, that help you to make those decisions? You know, when I graduated from Stanford Business School, um, I decided to start the African Leadership Academy. And for two years, I had no money. So I slept on people's couches. I made sure that I scheduled a meeting for breakfast, one for lunch and one for dinner, so that you know, the person who took me out would take pity on me as a starving entrepreneur and would cover the bill, right? Um, there was one time I was so broke, I was in, I tried, someone had sponsored me to go to the US for a fundraising trip. And I was in, I traveled from Wall Street to across the, the Hudson River to New Jersey to try and meet, to meet a donor to ask them for funding. And I didn't get the money. And I couldn't, I didn't even have enough money to take the train back to New York. I remember standing in New Jersey saying, how am I going to get back to, to New York? I had no money. I didn't even have train fare. And yeah, this was me two, two years after, um, a year and a half after having graduated from Stanford Business School. And I was completely broke. And I remember my mother was, you know, calling all my relatives, telling me I've gone crazy. I, I should have just, you know, gone and, you know, worked for McKinsey, who I used to work before. And the way I looked at it, I said, you know what? If what I'm doing right now fails, I have a Stanford MBA. I have skills. I've worked at McKinsey. My worst case option is I'll just go back to McKinsey. And, for more, and then within a few, a, a 10 years, I'll be making a million dollar salary. So I said, okay, my worst case option is better than the best case option for 99% of the people. In, so why am I worried? Why am I worried if my worst case option is better than the best case option for 99% of people? I should take this risk. And I think that too often we overestimate the cost of, of, of failure. Every person who's on this, who's listening to this podcast, who's a CEO, who's, you know, educated. I say that if you are educated, if you're healthy, if you have networks, if you have skills, you are in the top 1% of the top 1%. You're privileged. So the only way that you can justify this privilege is by doing hard, difficult things, not easy things. You need to think big and you need to try and, and, and you know, audacious things where, yes, there's a chance you could fail, but, you're, you know, and if you don't take these risks, then who will? There's the only way you can justify the opportunities that you have. Um, and I always say that I would rather fail trying to achieve something extraordinary than succeed at something ordinary. And that's one of the things that drives me. So I, you know, I, and that's why you know I say, yeah, we have no choice but to do this if, if you are part of the, the the few who are educated and, and, and have have opportunities, like many of the people who are listening to this call. You are considered currently, at least in my estimation, as one of the top education leadership development experts in the world. You don't the Africa thing. Now you're 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 a global star. You're at the Times 100. 
how do you view yourself when you look at yourself and said Fred Swanica on the on that business card? Who, who are you as, as a leader in terms of categorizing your 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 legacy? Well, I'll describe myself actually not so much as an educator, but as someone who is passionate about developing leaders because leadership development is not education. You know, leadership development, and in fact, talent development more broadly is not it's not it's not only about education. Education is an input, and, and I believe increasingly it's actually a very small input into how you develop someone's full potential, and where, whether it's as a leader or a talent in any other way. You know? So, for example, the Center for Creative Leadership did some research where they asked leaders all around the world to attribute um, the way in which they to attribute the um, the development of their leadership skills um, to different forms of the different experiences that they had had. And they attributed only 10% of their uh, development as leaders to the classroom. Attributed 20% to what they call developmental relationships with their peers and mentors and coaches. And they attribute 70% to experience, right? We learn best by doing. Yet today, most education is only focused on that 10%. I say, if you're developing a leader, you're developing talent, you need to think beyond that 10%. And think about how do you build networks to enable them to engage with their peers and to and to engage with coaches and mentors, like that, to get that twenty percent of learning of developmental relationships. And how do you create real world experiences for these for people, so that they learn by doing? And so when you look at it that way, then education is only ten percent of what we're doing. Um, and so I don't think of myself as an educator. I think of myself maybe as a leadership development expert. Um, and uh, and that is what I'm passionate about. That is, if I've developed any expertise in the last you know, almost 20 years, it is in this field. Uh, and I think that what we are doing to develop leaders through the African leadership group is pioneering not just for Africa, but for the whole world. And it's an example of innovation that has been born in Africa because of the constraints. We've had to reimagine everything, right, uh, in, in designing our educational models because um, we didn't have many of the resources that may, have been, may be found in the rest of the world. That has forced us to just think very differently and to build a new model that is not only relevant for developing leaders and talent more broadly in Africa, but that can be used elsewhere. What is that model? I mean, you're a former consultant, so you have two by twos and four by fours. The first is you need leadership potential. So we look for people who have uh, passion because, you know, to be a leader, you need to have something that keeps you up at night, something that is a cause that you're willing to you know, put everything towards, right? So, so, so you need passion. You need courage, right? Driving change is difficult. You need to be able to do hard things. You need resilience. When you're knocked down, you picked up, you pick yourself up and you keep going. Uh, you need values, right? Can you tell right from wrong? Do you have a good moral compass, etc. And then finally, um, you need imagination. Academics is not the main trait we look for. Yes, you know, they need to have some basic level of uh, intellectual development, but we're not looking for geniuses. We're looking for people who have these traits. The second thing you need is you need practice. So we develop these leaders in a very hands-on way through practice. They're doing internships. They're doing real-world projects for organizations. They're not just sitting in a classroom getting theory. Right? They're going to events. They're going to conferences. They're, they're, building, they're, they're learning from mentors and peers and coaches. The third thing you need to bring together is you need networks. Because no matter how good your skills are, if you don't have access to the right networks, you're not going anywhere. You need someone who's going to mentor you, who's going to uh, be on your board, who's going to your co-founder, who's going to be your customer, who's going to you know, be your uh, investor. You need all kinds of partnerships with people 
it's important to realize that education that was maybe in the past was developed in an era where information was scarce. The traditional view of a university is as the source of knowledge. Now, today, thanks to technology and, and things like Google, a child in a rural area in Africa has access to more information at their fingertips on their mobile phone than someone who was doing a PhD at Oxford 30 years ago. And so most people still have that outdated view of knowledge and they think that universities have a monopoly on knowledge. They don't. Everything is out there now. So what that means is that the aim of the university, I believe, needs to move away from giving you facts and figures because they actually have 5% of the facts and figures that you need or that you can get access to. Right? Rather, the role needs to be enabling you to learn how to learn so that you can learn by yourself. And then you can become a lifelong learner and keep reimagining yourself as the world changes. Today, you go to an Ivy League university, you spend $300,000 in that education, you come out and you can't get a job. That is, that is just not, no society can justify that, that kind of investment. And so when you look at the graduates of ALU, yes, they're being hired by the top companies in the world. When we send them into internships, the managers rate them um, four out of five, 4.5 out of five, uh, and 97% of managers ask for another intern when they hire one of our interns. Uh, the typical college graduate in Africa uh, the, the data I've seen shows that they get employed within five to ten years after college. Our graduates get employed within six months after college, after graduation. And yes, the typical college graduate in Kenya gets a job after five years after college, and in Ghana it's up to ten years. And then the ALU graduates, they're getting jobs within six months, right? And, and the managers are rating them highly and they're asking for more. So we are, so they're, they're very highly employed, and, and not just at any companies, right? They're working for Google in Ireland, they're working for McKinsey, they're working for you know, Goldman Sachs, they're working for the top companies in the world. About 10% of our graduates leave Africa to work globally, right? And they're competing at the top companies in the world. The other 90% stay in Africa and they're working for Standard Bank, they're working for you know, Equity Bank, they're working for you know, uh, great companies on the continent of Africa. If we can get graduates who are hired by the top companies in the world, Swiss Re, Goldman Sachs, Facebook, you know, McKinsey, Bain, BCG, all these top companies who are hiring our graduates. And our graduates are competing at the best graduate programs, they're getting into fellowship, all the things that are typically considered measures of success, right? They're founding entrepreneurial ventures. If, if we can do that at 5% of the cost of Stanford or Harvard or Yale, then why are you going to pay $300,000 when you can get something for... for for five or ten thousand dollars <laughs> to get the same outcome, that's a global innovation, and it's not just an African innovation. So, in theory, we need to have more ALUs across the continent of Africa to be a sort of a a best practice for university education globally. What would, would that be a fair statement? Well, firstly, we are going to expand globally. Well, we'll go to Latin America. We'll go to Asia. We'll go. We'll go to the U.S. itself. We have so many requests from people to come and open ALX and ALU in the U.S because they are seeing that this is a solution to the higher education crisis that they have there. 50% of US colleges are predicted to shut down in the next 10 years, right? Because they have unsustainable models. Even the way we, the, way the, the, the model of paying for education that we've developed is completely unique. Today you pay upfront to go to most universities with no guarantee of success. Our model is opposite. You don't pay upfront, you get the education for free at ALX, 
And when you graduate and you get a job, then you join our talent community called The Root, and then you pay a subscription to that community. But it's a community that continues to support you. They're helping you get your first internship. They're helping you get your first job. They're helping you get venture capital. You have a pathfinder who's helping you navigate this, your, your career. You know, we have um, a whole community that is supporting you for, your, for, for the rest of your life. And then the subscription that you pay, you only pay it when you're employed. So that subscription as a graduate that you pay then funds the next generation of students. That is completely unique, right? There are so many millions of young people around the world who need their, their potential to be unlocked. You can replicate this around the world. You can replicate this across Africa um, because we need many, many more models like this. And I'm not saying that this is the only model, it's the perfect model, but hopefully it will inspire some other people. They can take what they like of it, leave what they don't. And I actually believe that more businesses in Africa need to think of themselves as global businesses. Ultimately, I believe that there are two ways in which societies get wealthy. Option A is you go and steal it from another society. So this is how the, the Greeks went and stole from the Romans, the Romans stole from the Greeks, the Ottomans. You know, Europe was built. Portugal became wealthy by stealing from Latin America. UK became wealthy by stealing from Africa and India and, uh, and the whole world. So path A is you go and steal. Option B is you produce products for $1 and you sell it to another society for $10. And this is what China and India do, China especially. Right? So in a way then, and, and you, are, you, are, you are still extracting wealth from another society, from a wealthier society, but you're doing it in a legal way, right? Without coercion and arms and killing people. You're just selling your intellectual property and your, 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 um, the ideas that you have. So um, one of the, um, the, the things that I really believe is driving is constrained growth in Africa is the fact that we have very low purchasing power. So the average African lives on you know, less than $3 a day. So we, we don't have people who can buy our products. So if you produce, you know, Ghana and Ivory Coast make 70% of the world's uh, cocoa. If we produce a chocolate brand and we sell it in Africa, you produce it for a dollar and you sell it for 50 cents because people can't afford it. So all you're doing is exporting poverty from one part of Africa to the next. What we need to do is produce that chocolate for a dollar and sell it in Switzerland and in the UK and in China for 10 or $20. And that's how we get wealthy in Africa. So we have to go global. And one of the, one of the, the innovations that we are capitalizing on during COVID uh, in our model is before when we produced our talent and our leaders, they had to get employment only in Africa. But thanks to COVID, the world is now much more open to remote work. And so we are seeing a, a much bigger market for placing our talent and for employment, because now they can work in the whole world, right? So we're exporting talent, but without the brain drain, because they can stay in Africa. Now you can have a software engineer sitting in Kenya working for Siemens in Germany. You can have a designer sitting in Nigeria working for Zara in, uh, in Spain, but they don't have to leave Africa. That is, again, the kind of thing where we're now exporting our, um, you know, everything uh, we're exporting um, and therefore getting much more value for the human capital that we have, right? It's not being stolen. We are actually adding value and we are then able to get that value much more fairly, right? And this is the way we need to think as a continent. We will remain poor forever if we do not go global. For, for the skills, for the talents you're talking about, how do you envision this talent being representative in, in, on, the, in the global stage? 
are, are they to dominate? Are they to be peers or are they to be subservient? What did they say when Michelle Obama said, when they go low, you go high, right? We don't want to go and replicate what has happened to, to Africa and other things. No. So for us, I don't want to go and dominate the rest of the world. I want to collaborate with the rest of the world and to ensure that we are on equal footing, right? And we exchange ideas, we exchange capital, we exchange, you know, um, uh, you know, goods and services through trade fairly and where both sides feel equally uh, compensated and, you know, they can participate of their own free will. That's the way I look at it, right? And so, um, you know, if we are successful, then just like today, you see, um, you know, Google is led by an Indian. Microsoft is led by an Indian. <laughs> Mastercard was led by an Indian. Soon those will be led by Africans, right? Global companies led by Africans. But they might be managing it from Dar es Salaam. <laughs> right? And that for me is what, is, 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 uh, is, uh, is what this world uh, holds for. So I think that Africa is actually sitting on a massive, massive gold mine, which is its talent. We are the youngest continent in the world. The average age of an African is 19. The average age of a German or Japanese is 47. The rest of the world is aging. The workforce is shrinking. And we are the only continent that has young people. And those young people, if we can educate them and unlock their potential, this can be an incredible resource for the world to tap into. But, they, but, but this time they're going to tap into them you know, fairly and without exploitation, without duress. Because they're not coming to steal it. We are actually adding value and selling it at a much higher price. Thanks for listening to Afrocatalyst, presented by Boto Emerging Markets Group. Visit afrocatalyst.com for more. Remember to hit the subscribe button to stay up to date with future episodes. And let us know what you think by rating us wherever you're listening. I'm Isaac Wekufoko Jr. Until next time.